Well, good morning, Mission Church. Are you fired up for God's word? Say amen. amen. I heard it. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, now to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. As I hear that wonderful sound of pages turning, allow me to pray again. Father, your grace, your mercy. It's our heart's need, and um, oh, Father, that you would enlighten us, that it would be our heart's desire today. Father, we're all um, failing sinners in every way, but yet the work of your Son has positioned us saved, secure, and spotless in the sight of you. We're grateful, Lord God, for your work today. God, would you instruct us today in how, Lord God, we can lean upon your patience, how we can lean upon your grace, how we can lean upon your mercy, even in our failing. Lord, would you remind us today that you are faithful in our faithlessness. Oh, but God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you help us to be faithful today, to press in, to tune our ear very closely to your word. Would you protect my words, that they would not in any way become a distraction to the intent of the passage of Scripture that we have before us today. Lord God, do your work in this place, I pray, in Jesus' name. And all of the church said in both campuses, amen. Amen, indeed, we are in Exodus chapter 33, because uh, for those of you who are new, we are in a series called Courageous Calling, Finding Strength in God. This series has been a series where we are following along, studying the life of Moses, a man who indeed was giving a call by God. A man who, in response to this call, had to lean upon the Lord and his strength for the courage to take every step along the way. We as a church have stepped back and said, just as Moses has been called, so too has every man, woman, and child upon this earth been called by God in some way. All of us have been called by God to a call of obedience. Romans chapter 1 says, the law of the Lord is written upon the conscience of men, and so we know right from wrong, and God calls us to obey him. It's an obedient call. Here's a big theological term called efficacious, an effective call. Here's an efficacious call of God where he calls you to repentance and you will bend your knee. In that moment, you repent of your sins. You become a new creation, a son, a daughter, a child of God. It's a call of salvation. And then to the redeemed, to the saved, God gives a unique life's work. Indeed, every creation of God is given for a purpose, but for those who know Christ as Savior, he has prepared good works in advance that you would walk in them. Yes, indeed, friends, that is a call of the Lord upon your life. And so as we come again to the life of Moses, we see him, a man in great need of the strength of God. We've seen him trust now in God's providence, God's purpose, God's perspective, his promises, his preeminence, his propitiation, his power, his provision, his battle plan, his purity. Oh, how the peas are flowing. Now today... Moses is going to find strength in God's patience. Say patience. Patience. So the obvious question today, come on, you know it's coming. How are you doing with patience? I'll take that giggle as you think you're killing it. You're doing a great job. I'll take that laugh like you just hit the bar, man. Anyone here? Anyone here feel like they're a patient person? Come on, raise your hand. Raise your hand really high because you should be proud of that. 
All right, wonderful, wonderful. Okay, patience and humility go hand in hand. So if you raised your hand, you've just sold yourself out. Um, <laughs> patience and humility go hand in hand. So if you know a patient person, why don't you point at them right now? Come on, paint at, point at a patient person. Oh, come on, all the siblings just missed their cue. All the spouses just missed their opportunity for a great lunch conversation. How many of you wish somebody was able to point at you right now? How many of you wish you were a little bit more of a patient person? Oh, yeah. Patience. Patience is a virtue. Patience is a virtue that I indeed wish I could grow in. But here's the deal with me. I am so impatient that I have become impatient with my impatience. I am impatient at the lack of growth and the lack of progress that I'm seeing in this impatient man that I am. I'm a pathetic human being. <laughs> and here's the deal. In all of my pursuit of patience, here is one warning, one piece of advice that I would like to give all of you in this room. It is this. Be careful, be careful, be careful on the days that you pray for patience. For indeed, when you pray for patience, friends, it's on. Indeed. And if you're, here's the other thing. If you're going to pray for patience, pray for it at night. Because then you can go to bed and sleep on it. And you can kind of get a head start on hopefully resting through the night. Because in the morning, oh, be sure every school bus, you're behind it. Every slow driver, yes, he is now your man of sanctification. He's your means. You can count on the internet going down. That LTE service you've been counting on is now a spinning wheel. You're going to be late to lunch. Oh, come on. Tell me your kids aren't going to be on your last nerve that day. And if you would choose, if you would pray in the morning for patience and then, and then, and then somehow find it a good idea to go to Costco... Bless your heart. <laughs> last time Robin and I prayed for patience, the last time we asked for the Lord to make us, help us to be patient, we ended up with three boys in less than three years. You do the math. God has a unique way of bringing patience. What's the point? The point is this. We're slow to raise our hands because we know that patience is not a natural thing. We know that indeed, if there is any patience, I've come to this conclusion, if there is any patience in me, if there's any real patience in me, not the white knuckle kind, it has indeed been put there by God. Romans 15 verse 5 says this, May the God of endurance, the God of patience and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. May the God of patience give you patience. Aren't you glad that our God is a patient God? Aren't you glad that the psalmist was able to write with integrity, the Lord is merciful and gracious? To step back and contemplate that the Lord is slow to anger, that he's abounding in steadfast love, and then indeed that he would apply this patience to you. That God would be willing to apply this patience to me that Peter would be able to write this, that the Lord, our Lord is not slow in fulfilling his promise as some count slowness, but he is patient. He's patient toward who? He's patient toward you. 
He's patient towards you. He's patient towards who? Say me. The fact that you're breathing right now is evidence of God's patience. But he's patient with me, not wishing that any of us would perish, but that all should reach repentance. Our God is holy. Our God is holy, and in his holiness, oh, what patience, oh, what restraint, oh, what mercy, oh, what grace must flow from the throne of God that a holy God would not put forth his justice and wrath even now. And today I want us, though, to strengthen our thought on this, to strengthen our perspective on the patience of God. I want you to consider that there's never been a time nor will there ever be an instance when our God will lose his patience. There has never been, nor will there ever be a time when our God will fly off the handle. Even in passages like today, where it looks like God has finally had enough. Indeed, in his holiness, in the tension of all of his attributes, God is holy, and he can be no less patient than holiness requires. He can be no less loving than holiness requires. He can be no less just than holiness requires. He is all of these attributes held in perfect tension at every moment of every day and every instance. Everything God does is good. It is right. It is just, and it is right on time. Think about the mercy of God thus far in our storyline. Think about God's grace. Think about his goodness. How gracious was he to rescue Moses from the Nile? How gracious was he while he was out in the wilderness beginning to to live a normal quote-unquote life in a far-off land of Midian? How God rescued him from that in a burning bush and brought him back to Egypt. How gracious was God to use him to lead his people out of slavery? And you would say, well, there it is. Look how gracious God is. Look at how patient God is. Look at how loving and merciful God is. But understand in all of the grace and mercy, there was equal justice. For in the calling out of his people, there was going to be judgment upon those who rejected him. And the going forth to Pharaoh, yes, he was gracious to use Moses, but Pharaoh was going to indeed endure the wrath of God. And providing manna and quail in the wilderness that they would have sustenance, God indeed dealt with their grumbling and their complaining. In the battle of Amalek, we know, yes, indeed, God provided victory by grace and mercy by allowing Moses' hands to be held up, and God fought for them but there was an enemy that day who did fall. God is gracious and he is just. He is all things at all times. And then last week in the giving of the Ten Commandments, we saw, we saw the justice of God. We saw the holiness of God. Oh, but the mercy of God and the grace of God that he said, indeed, I'm going to set you apart. I'm going to make you a redeemed people, but don't miss this. Thou shalt not. Oh, how gracious of God, now that we're able to see these Ten Commandments in light of Christ's fulfillment thereof. (laughs) 
And so now, this week, when we come to a text that demonstrates God's equity, when we come to a text that God's justice is on full display, when we come to a text where God indeed, for righteousness' sake, puts forth judgment, we must be resolved and remember that He is the same God. He is just as gracious and loving and kind and merciful in these moments as He was at the rescuing of the baby from the Nile. We need to put our minds on this. In His justice, He is no less merciful. In the taking of action, He is no less patient than He was before. Why? Because He's still completely holy. He doesn't lose his cool. He always does what's right. He always does what's in accordance to his goodness and his holiness. With that foundation, with that stake post driven firmly into the ground, that our God is holy, fully merciful, fully just, fully gracious, yet fully capable of rendering wrath upon those who are deserving we indeed need to press in and learn what it means to find strength in the patience of God. Sinner, today we need to grasp this idea without the Lord's patience, there is no me. Without the Lord's patience, there is no today. Without the Lord's patience, there is no heaven. Without the Lord's patience, there is no redemption. Indeed, are you ready? Are you ready today to gain strength in God's patience? If you are, say, I'm ready now. But I can wait. Say that too. That's patience. Exodus chapter 32, the patience of God, even in a moment when it looks like he's done. Context, last week we indeed did leave off in Exodus chapter 20, but we are following along the life of Moses. In between last chapter and chapter 32, Moses has been called back up on the mountain again so he can be given more instructions by the Lord. In between, God has given a lot of instructions, a lot of religious instructions, a lot of sanctifying instructions concerning the tabernacle and other such important matters. But now here he is again up on the mountaintop. In addition to the Ten Commandments that thou shalt not. You remember the Ten Commandments, don't you, from last week? Thou shalt not have any God before me, no graven image. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. Keep the Sabbath. Honor your parents. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. And thou shalt not covet. Now, Moses meets with the Lord, and the Lord now engraves these Ten Commandments on stone. While Moses is meeting with the Father Yahweh in glory, meanwhile, meanwhile, at the bottom of the mountain, verse, chapter 32, verse 1. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. 
As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the golden ring that are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters, and you bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in the ears, and they brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it while with a graven tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And then they rose up the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink. And then they rose up to play. Friends, today we find strength in God's patience in three predominant ways. And here's the first one. We can find strength in God's patience when we are first and foremost resolved not to abuse God's patience. We can find strength in God's patience when we acknowledge that God is patient and then we become resolved not to abuse God's patience. Romans chapter 2 verse 4 says this. Do you not presume on the riches, on his kindness and forbearance and his patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Come on, how kind has God been to Israel? Friends, this, these first six verses are a perfect picture of abusing somebody's patience for the sake of your own impatience of abusing somebody else's patience for the, for the sake of your own impatience. Look at the text. Look at, look at verse 1. And when they saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. Okay, okay, let's just acknowledge this. That Moses was up on the mountain for a, for a good long time. Any spouses in the room ever wait for your spouse outside of Target? Come on, raise your hand if you've ever, okay, pick another store. I don't care what store it is. I see elbows flying. Lots of people have waited outside of stores. Has that ever felt like 40 days? Has it ever felt like 40 days? You got that feeling? Now imagine it actually was 40 days. All right, that's how long Moses has been gone. The people are growing impatient. Where did he go? What is he doing? Come on. God has met our need. God has met our need. God has met our need. He show, he's been right here. He's been right here. There's been a cloud. There's been, there's been a pillar of fire. There's always been the presence of God. And he's been right here for us every time we need him. And, I, and I, we've, we've needed and he's prayed. And we needed water and the rock put forth. And we needed and we quail it. Here it comes. Now where is he? Have you ever grown impatient at the sanctifying patience of the Lord? You read this text and it's so easy to look down a long brow, to look down a long nose at Israel and say, how my word, after all the Lord has done, are you kidding me? But yet, oh friend, if we don't see ourselves in the place of Israel, if we don't see ourselves in the seat of the same failing we will miss, 
For oh, indeed, the same way that they have abused the Lord's patience, we indeed are guilty of the same. Four clear ways here that they abuse the patience of God, and the first is right jumping off the text. They disobey God's word. You want to test the patience of the Lord? Disobey his word. Please don't. Just a little more than a month ago, they were completely overwhelmed by the Lord of God. Remember? The ground shook. Lightning flashed from the sky. He said to Moses, I'm going to deliver these Ten Commandments for everybody to hear. They had no excuse. They knew exactly what God said. It even says they trembled at his voice. And then 18 verse 9, they said this, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They answered God's call, and they made a vow before the Lord, anything you say we will do. They knew the commandments. They knew, they heard with their own ears, but they apparently didn't allow for them to see it in their heart. Is that not the key? Friends, we know this. It's not enough just to come to church. It's not enough just to open God's word. It's not enough merely just to sing songs. It's that the truth of God would take residency in our hearts. So when we sit under the proclamation of God's word, we ask ourselves, what what does this mean for my heart? What does this mean for me? The song that I sing, what does it mean for for my heart? What What does it mean about God? God has got to be at the center of all of these things. His word, his word, his word have I hid in my heart. His word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And so if there is a checkbox, if there is a checkbox in your spiritual life that says, I attended church, therefore I'm in good standing with God, erase the check. Oh, indeed, don't mishear me. We need gather as the church of God. We need be in God's word. We need sing songs of praise. But we must not let them become hollow. We must not just step back and marvel at the thunder of his voice. We have to let that thunder take residence within our hearts that it would be transformed. And so here you have Israel. We know what God said. We heard with our own ears. We know, we know he said to have no gods before him, but it's hard to put a God before a God who's not here. I know, I know he said no graven image. But do you think he could show himself? I know. I know. But listen, we'd rather have a God we can see than one who is MIA. We'd rather have a God that we can touch. We'd rather have a God that we can feel. We'd rather have a God who we know, who we can see, that we can manipulate, that we can create for ourselves. For what God is this? That he would just leave us here. What God is this? That he would take our leader 
Which leads us to the second way in which they definitely pressed upon the patience of God, and that was by doubting God's purpose. Disobeying God's word, now doubting God's purpose. Look at at 1B. This, this, This kind of made my mind melt this week a little bit. Make for us a God who shall go before us. That'll make your brain melt in and of itself. Now watch. As for this Moses. This Moses? This Moses? You mean this guy who God has used to rescue out of 400 years of oppression and slavery? You mean this guy who was used by God who put his life on the line to go before the most powerful man in all of the world to request your removal? You mean this guy who slammed his staff into the ground and God obliged and split the sea? You mean this God who, this man who represented God in bringing water, this man? This Moses. Have you ever approached the Lord or his work with a what have you done for me lately mindset? At the core of their confusion over Moses' absence, at the core of their confusion over Moses' absence, make no mistake, what's really at the core of this confusion is a contempt for the plan of God. It's a contempt for the purpose of God. It's a contempt toward the very patience of God. My time, our plan, our needs, when I want it, when I need it, that's now. And if you're not going to deliver, then we will deliver for ourselves. And they do the unthinkable. They do the unthinkable. Less than a month before, we have to imagine, less than a month before, Moses comes down in 40 days and the idol's already made. So in less than 40 days, they grow impatient. Less than a month's time, they're like, all right, if you're not going to come, here's what we're going to do. Build for us an idol. And if that's not unthinkable enough, look at what they use to build the idol. Look at verse 2. Watch how they distort the grace of God, point three. And so Moses, and so Aaron said to them, all right, all right, all right. Take off your rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. Take off the gold. Bring the precious metals. And so all the people took off their earrings and gold and, that were in their ears, and they brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand. Where, where did the nation get gold? Where did the nation get gold? Come on. You think all the slaves working in Egypt, were, you think their masters were allowing them to obtain gold? We know where the gold came from. The Lord said, when you come up out of Egypt, you're going to be blessed and you're coming out of Egypt and they're going to, you'll be able to take whatever you want to take. Take the gold, take the silver, take, the, take that which is precious along with you. And here they are, the very grace, blessing, and mercy of God. The blessings that God had given them in their exodus, they are now using to construct an idol of God. And look at how fast they give it up. Indeed, gold was just as precious then as it is now. 
But listen, friends, when our heart wants something, when we're insecure and we want to move towards security quickly, we will give up that which is precious to us. We will move very fast. We will become very sacrificial. We will give up our resources. We will give of our attention. We will give of our time. We will give of our energy. When an idol grips our heart, when God isn't enough, indeed, indeed, we will expend ourselves for that which brings us pleasure, for that which indeed appeases our needs. And here, It's easy to look down upon them for creating a physical idol, but if I'm honest with myself, I use the precious things in my life to create idols all the time. Indeed, it's the most precious things in my life that are the most dangerous to me. Oh, that fine line is seeing them as a grace of God and a provision that he's given. That fine line between praising God for the blessings he's giving me and then... (laughs) and then crossing that line and making the blessing the idol that I worship and not the God who blessed me with that thing. Oh, how I long to preserve and protect my family. Oh, how I love them and would do anything for them. Some of you have been blessed with wonderful workplaces and a wonderful job and a a wonderful career. All of these wonderful blessings of God, family, work, friends. Oh, the stuff that we could accumulate. Oh, to go out in the garage and wax it one more time. Oh, to stare back at a picture of an experience that we just would long to live again. Oh, indeed, to celebrate the status that we finally achieved, the role that we're finally filling. Because I don't know what it is. But with as much humility as I can muster, I need to confess to you that on a week of preparation like this, indeed, the Lord has pointed out many, many idols in my life. And if you walk out of here today saying, I have no gold statue in my house, search, search the shelves of your heart instead. These things are precious. These things are wonderful. These things that I've named for sure. But they need not, they best not, they ought not, they cannot take the place of affection for our God. We don't worship God for what he can do for us. We don't worship God for what he can provide for us. We don't sing louder to do better at work this week. We don't study harder to be smarter in our success. For indeed, this is the failing. This was the failing of the nation for sure. Because what do they do? They try the patience of the Lord by distorting the very worship of their God. This graven image represented a grave and a twisted heart, and our idols come from the same place. And it seems as though Aaron, in some twisted way, in some twisted way, he has rationalized the idol that he's about to build. In some syncretistic way, he is mixing, he's mixing what he's learned about Yahweh, this great redeemer who's rescued them, and he's mixing it with what's familiar from the land they just left. Look at the text. 
took off their rings and he said, these are your gods. These are your gods. The gods, plural there, probably speaks of high reverence. Can still be utilized in the singular. Oh, Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Look at this. They said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. This golden calf that is constructed before you, this is the God who brought you up out of Egypt. Have you heard of the second commandment recently? Thou shalt not make any graven image of the Lord. Now watch. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow you shall feast to the Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Every time you see capital L-O-R-D in your Bible, that is Yahweh. That is the Lord Most High. And so Aaron is like, Tomorrow, because we built this graven image, we are going to worship Yahweh your God. When's the last time this nation had a feast? When's the last time an altar was built and blood was shed? Come on, when was Jesus say you're going to make this as a memorial? When did Yahweh say you're going to make this as a memorial unto you? And then generation after generation after generation, you are going to have this feast of memorial. And what was that feast of memorial supposed to symbolize? You will remember the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. What is he doing? He's not merely, he's not merely distorting the image of God. He's desecrating the very worship of God. For indeed, the last feast that they had was the Passover meal. The feast that was prescribed for their worship going forward was the remembrance of atoning. Sacrificial blood that was shed, the propitiation that was done. And so here they are at this graven image saying, here, here is the God. Here is the God who propitiated on your behalf, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. They were blaspheming his name. They were desecrating the memorial of the feast and they were distorting his very worship. And the term there says, and they rose up and they rose up and they rose up for play. Make no mistake, friends, this is as, as foul as your imagination will take you. Don't even let it go there. This was complete perversion and blasphemy before the Lord. They made their God all about them. They made God all about them. And they made the worship of this God all about themselves. We're impatient. We need an image. We need security. We need something we can touch. We need something we can feel. Oh, friends, what dangerous ground we are on when we make worship about ourselves. What dangerous ground we are on when we come in to the house of the Lord so that we would leave feeling better. What dangerous ground we are in when we construct manipulative forces to tug upon the emotional heartstrings of people. Oh, let God's presence be that thing. 
Oh, the great byproduct. Oh, the great grace of God is that you would leave here feeling built up by the power of his presence. Oh, but for you to leave here feeling manipulated in any way, oh, how it will fall away. Oh, how fleeting it is. And oh, how the Lord would have nothing of it. When the motivation of our worship is to feel better about ourselves, we become the object of our own affection. When the goal of the worship is for us to feel better about ourselves in any way, we actually become the object of our own affection. Oh, how the calf stood as representation of the idol that existed within their own hearts. And that idol was indeed themselves, their own sensuality, their own pleasures, their own desires, their own wants. May we come with fear and trepidation before the Lord. Oh, but except for the covering of his gracious son's blood. The inclination of the Lord's heart would be the same toward us as it was towards Israel. Look at the text. Verse 7, And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, go down. For your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf, and they have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them. This key word, let me alone that my wrath may be heard burn hot against them is key, that I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. Right here in God's grace, he reveals the inclination of his character to Moses. He reveals, hear me very carefully, the inclination. His actions are now inclined due to the very nature of his character towards justice now, for the very glory of God has been desecrated. And so his inclination has been given to Moses. And essentially God says, if you let it be as it is, this is what's happening. But in God's grace and patience, graciousness and patience, he makes Moses aware that Moses could pray. You see, if you really want to experience the strength that comes in the patience of God, you need to rightly align yourself in prayer. If you've tested the patience of God, if you've pressed upon the patience of God, if you've sinned against your God, you need to align yourself. Align yourself again with Him in prayer. Don't miss this. God says, let me consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you, Moses. Look at how far Moses has come from the guy who didn't want to go, didn't want to talk, didn't want to lead, didn't care about the people. Come on. How far has Moses come? 
But Moses implored the Lord. He begged Yahweh, his God. And he says, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and with with a great and mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent that did he bring them out just to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Oh, please, Lord God, turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. God intends to keep his promise to Abraham. He will make a great nation. He needs one. We've already seen he needs one, one, one person. If the flood has taught us anything, the Lord is willing to start over. He needs one from the bloodline to remain to keep the promise sure. He's willing to fulfill his promise. And here he would be justified. He would be justified. He would be justified in his holiness to do just that. But we learn that this is not God's sovereign end. This is not God's sovereign end. Be like, but he's already revealed his inclination. Pastor Jerry, what what do we do with this? God providentially now moves in Moses to pray. And pray he does. Listen, prayer does not exist outside of God's providential, sovereign plan. Prayer indeed is the plan of God. Prayer is in the plan of God. Prayer is part of the plan of God. And so God moves in Moses so that we can see how prayer interfaces with the sovereign work of God. How does prayer interface? How does prayer How is prayer used of God to fulfill his purposes? It reminds us of this passage in James chapter 5, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Why? Because the prayer of a righteous person has great power at its working. Today, we're going to see the power of a righteous prayer. Today, we're going to see how a sovereign God moves in his righteous redeemed to pray. And how in it's in the prayers of the righteous and of the faithful, it provides that which God prescribes that he may then be able to exercise his holiness towards grace and mercy. When without that prayer, the inclination would have been just for wrath to flow. And so how does Moses pray? He prays for God's glory. This righteous prayer is a prayer that petitions God's glory. Oh God, that your glory will be seen among the nations. Verse 11, Moses begs God to show mercy on his people and the people he's already saved. Verse 12, God, please show the Egyptians, show them. Show them in the world your saving power. Moses knows that the God he's praying to, he knows this God's character. He's experienced this God's character before. He's gracious and he's just. He knows that God is completely just to wipe the nation out, but he also knows that this God is gracious and that God was gracious to reveal the legitimacy of his justice in this moment. Whatever comes of this prayer, this much we can be assured. 
God will work in accordance to His holiness and glory. Whatever comes of Moses' prayer, God will work in accordance to His goodness, His holiness, and ultimately to His glory. And so he says, God, let your glory shine among the nations. Lord God, from my earthly point of view, you saving your people will bring you the greatest glory. Please, God, do that. Verse 13, then he appeals to God's perfect nature. Look at verse 13. Remember, remember God, remember your promises to Abraham. Remember your promise to Isaac and Jacob, your servants. Please remember them. God, to them you swore your own self and you said to them, I will multiply your offspring and the stars of heaven and all of this land that I have promised. I will give your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. God can keep his promise to do all of this, but he doesn't have to do anything with this group of people. God, please. And then this, verse 14. And the Lord relented. And the Lord relented. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Come on, theologian, what do you do? Come on, people of God, what do you do with an unchanging God? Come on, disciple of Jesus Christ, we have to reconcile this. What do we do? Step away. Step away that my wrath may fall upon these people. What is the Lord revealing to us? Without prayer, God was indeed the inclination of his character. Without the prayer of the righteous, indeed, he was fully and surely headed toward the wrath here. And God indeed in his divine character and his sovereignty revealed, revealed his inclination. Not the edict, but an inclination to the man whom he's chosen that he would pray. And then indeed the prayer of the righteous, the appeal of the righteous. God answered the prayer. Christian, you need to understand the power of prayer. You need to understand where prayer fits in the sovereign plan of God. Why should I pray if God is sovereign and he's already going to do this anyway? Don't miss it. The reason why he was going to do this anyway is because he was going to have Moses pray. You, your prayers... Your prayers aligned with the will of God. God desires for you to cry out to him. Prayer is part of God's plan. Prayer, may I even say, indeed is God's plan. The word relent here in the Hebrew is naham. It means to be comforted or relieved. To be comforted or relieved. In this prayer, Naham, God relented, was comforted and relieved that his course of action, his course of this course of action was now indeed in line with his holy character, that he would answer the prayer of the righteous, you see. God who steps outside of time, his character is shown within time. 
And so this God who exists outside of time knows the end from the beginning. But for Moses and the nation who exists within time prior to the prayer, they were deserving of the wrath and they still were deserving of the wrath of God even after the prayer. But with the prayer, God inclined himself toward mercy. Pray. Pray, church. Pray and appeal to the glory of God. Pray and appeal to the promise of God, that person who looks utterly lost to you. Pray that God would redeem them. That person who's headed to destruction, pray that God would intervene. You see, God relents, but now Moses picks up the offense. God relents, but now Moses picks up the offense. Look at the text. Verse 15. Now Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, the tablets that were graven on both sides, the front and the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, Joshua waited halfway on the mountain, by the way. On his way down, he's like, hey, I hear a big noise. It sounds like there's like a, like a battle going on down there. Verse 18, but he said, no, it's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but it's the sound of singing that I hear. Wow. They're singing. They're singing to the idol. Not much has changed. And as soon as he came near the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger burned hot, and he loses it. And he throws down the tablet out of his hands and he broke them at the foot of the mountain, symbolizing the breaking of the covenant of God. And then he took the calf and then he made, that he made out, that they made, and he burned it with fire and he ground it into powder and he threw it into water and he made him drink it. If you want to experience the patience of God, repent, 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 and come with an accountable posture before the Lord. What does repentance look like? It looks like an anger towards sin. It looks like an anger towards sin. It looks like an anger towards that which offends our God. What does repentance look like? It looks like an accountability for our actions. It looks like an accountability for our actions. In case you're wondering what anger towards sin looks like, in case you're wondering how to remove an idol from your life, try this. Try burning it. Try melting it. Try using it as creamer in your coffee tomorrow. What indeed is Moses demonstrating? This is what this idol's worth, waste. If pornography is your struggle, burn the computer. If materialism is your struggle, cut the card and give something away. If success is your idol, take down the plaque that you've been staring at for so long. Admit your weakness. Oh, the idols that exist in my own heart, let me count them. Oh, but lest we admit them, we are the same as the nation. Oh, that your soul would be 
There'd be dissonance in your soul today for that which you put above God. Oh, that in this moment you would seek accountability for your actions. Look at what Moses does. He goes right to the leader. He goes right to the leader. And he says to Aaron, what in the world did these people do that you would get them in this much trouble? I've totally had that conversation with my sons recently. Watch what Aaron does. This is what idolatry does to your heart and mine. Come on, Moses, let not the anger of the Lord burn hot here. You know how evil these people are. What was I supposed to do? For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. And as for this, Moses, as for this, by the way, the man you who brought us up out of Egypt, where in the world have you been? Let me over here to babysit these crazy people. You know what a chore this is. Now, here's the thing. Can you hear it? We didn't even know what became of you. And so I said to them, I said to them, the only thing I could say, let me, let, let me know. Let any of you who have gold take it off. And so then they gave it to me. Now watch, 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 watch. Come on. <laughs> you know, you watch, that, you watch that football commentary where they say, come on, man. I'm going to read this and then you do that together. Would you just do that for me? Because this is so, here's what, watch, watch, watch. And they gave it to me and I threw the gold in the fire and out came this calf. Come on, man. What are we, five? I don't know how this chocolate got over my face. And then Moses saw the people. And then Moses saw the people. He started with the leader, but notice this. We're all accountable for our own actions. If you're led into sin, make no mistake, you chose the sin you were led into. Moses saw the people had broken loose. For Aaron, let them break loose. Verse 20, verse 26. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Who is on the Lord's side? If you are, come on over here. He gives them a chance to repent. I love this. And so they said, come to me. And so with all the people who came, especially the Levites came, which were indeed his tribe, by the way, and they gathered around him. And he, he said to them, thus, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, put your sword on your side, each of you. I'm going to demonstrate mercy, grace, and justice right now. And you're going to go fro from the gate throughout the camp, each of you, Kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor, those who've not chosen to repent. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 people fell. They died. And Moses said, today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord because you've done a difficult thing. Each one at the cost of his son, his brother, that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. Accountability was indeed administered in this moment. Full of grace to those who repented, but God's justice and wrath upon those who chose the idol over him. Oh, the nation needed to be purified in this moment, and purified they were. For idolatry to remain would have corrupted the entire camp. And so, final point of the morning is this repent, be angered by our sin. Be accountable for our actions and then finally ask forgiveness of the Lord. The next day, Moses said to the people, verse 30, you have sinned a great sin 
and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sins. Are you so glad that Jesus didn't say, perhaps I can? Again, Moses serves as the mediator, but make no mistake, a, a wanting mediator he is, a frail, failed mediator he is. But trust me, as a good leader, let me go. Let me go before our God. Let me see what I can do. You have sinned a great sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, the people have sinned a great sin, God. You've made for themselves, they've made for themselves gods of gold. Notice how he asked for forgiveness. He names the specific sin. They made an idol, God. They made an image of you. Be specific in your sin when you go to God for forgiveness. Come on, no generalities. Like, God, I know I'm a bad person. God, I am an adulterer. And this is the God I placed before you. This is what I've worshipped instead of you. This is the high that I've chased and the emotion that I've longed for. And I've been, I've been pretending like it's you. Here they were, gathered on a calf, pretending it was Yahweh. Rationalizing the blessings of God. Well, God gave us this goal. God gave us this grace. God gave me this heart to feel this way. Come on, name it. So Moses returned to the Lord. Verse 32, but now, but now if you will forgive their sins, God, please, if you'll forgive their sins. He couldn't even finish the sentence. Pause, pregnant pause. But God, if not, please blot me out of your book that you've written. God, if you're not going to forgive them, put me with them. And maybe even here it seems what Moses is doing is, God, take me in their place. Take me in their place. Oh, how Moses marched before us in the word of God as a type of Christ. Oh, but indeed, even if Moses had been slain that day, his blood wouldn't even have covered his own sin, let alone the sin of the people. Oh, friend, you are not virtuous for struggling in your sin, for your struggle will bring you no closer to righteousness than the sin itself. It's only repentance. Oh, you can sit there and beat yourself up all day long in your pride, or you can humble yourself and fall on your knees before the Lord. You can pretend like you'll fix it tomorrow. That's your idol. You can pretend like it'll get better, and I'll get it all figured out soon, and nobody's going to need to know. You know what that thing is? That's the idol. That's the idol. That's what's standing between you and God. Now is your time to repent. Now is your time to bend your knee. Now is the time to say to yourself, I'm going home. And I will not have that thing anymore. And I'm going to tell somebody so that they will know so that I can be held accountable because it indeed today, Lord God, I want nothing between you and me. Indeed, there are people in your life who would do anything to help you. I'm sure. But even in their help, they will fail you. That's why Jesus came. Even if they could die for your sins, it wouldn't help you in your sin. Even if Moses could have died for their sins, it wouldn't have covered their sins. That's why Jesus came. 
One was coming, he would die for the sins of the world. One was coming, he would die for the sins of the people. This is how God was able to propitiate the sins of the nation because he was storing his wrath for the day the one would come. Oh, by God's grace, we are on this side of God's outpouring of wrath. Jesus died for your sins. He said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Listen, listen, even while you were still dead in your trespasses and sin, even in this, while you were still sinners, Christ died for you, Romans 5.8. Friends, this is our story in so many ways. Oh, how we've failed and how we've pressed upon the patience of God. Oh, but friends, in this moment, you can cry out to God in prayer and align yourself back with him. And what we would pray is this, God, I acknowledge my sin. I acknowledge my sin. I've identified my idol. It angers me that I failed you in this way. Oh, Lord God, please, please forgive. Please forgive. Please, Lord God, I repent and I ask for the blood of your son to be washed over my sins that I might be forgiven and saved. Friends, if you've never done that before, Now, now, in your own words and in your own way, you come to the God of heaven and he will forgive your sins. And if you are a Christian, one who has asked for the Lord's forgiveness before, oh, his patience, his loving kindness. These last moments today were his patience. This is his kindness providing you the same opportunity that was offered to the nations. Who will choose the Lord? Who is on the Lord's side? As we sing this closing song, I pray that you would stand when you're ready to declare that you are on the Lord's side. We will sing and you will stand when you're ready to proclaim that I am on the Lord's side.